Good morning. So good to hear all the chatter out there as you fellowship with one another. As uh, Josh indicated, Pastor Kyle's a little bit under the weather. And uh, midweek he says, hey, Brendan, I'm looking for a plan B. (laughs) And uh, I thought of a lot of things in the back of my head, excuses I might be able to come up with. But ultimately... Uh, and my wife can attest because I shared it with her. I said, I have to remind myself who I'm serving. I'm serving him. So in a short week, I'm here. I'm grateful to be here. Um, but thanks for, for coming this morning. And I'm going to start with a series of questions, kind of the like some common expressions. Your favorite part of any message is, you know, the audience participation part. So. Uh, these are common expressions as we think about uh, maybe words or, or language we use. So just by a show of hands, a judgment-free zone, uh, we're going to go through these. And if you think they're true, I'd like you to just kind of raise your hand. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Show of hands. Anybody think that one's true? Okay, we've got, we got some out there. All right. If you have nothing nice to say... Don't say anything at all. Anybody think? Okay. We're warming up. Good. Uh, loose lips sink ships. It's a World War II era, right? Okay. Don't try to say that one five times fast. It might not go the way you think. Um, but today, I opened that way just to kind of demonstrate where we're headed. We have spent, uh, according to Steve, uh, 31 weeks talking about the walk. And today I plan to spend about 31 minutes talking about the talk. So we've moved on from the walk. We're looking at the talk. And we're in James chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 12 is our core text. I'll have it on the screen for you, but if you'd like to follow along and take notes, That's the primary passage uh, to turn to today. So we do know, you know, that words matter. Words have significance. Um, They have powerful meanings. Once a word is is said, uh, it, it can't be taken back. Once we have heard something, we can't unhear it. We're all familiar with this idea in this era of a hot mic, right, where someone says something that they think they've said with a layer of privacy only to find out it's recorded for the world to hear. And as they work through that, it can be really hard to unravel and unwind what it is they said in that hot mic moment. So we, we understand this, uh, that words, words are powerful. If you think about certain moments in your life, you know, uh, short phrases or words can be tremendously meaningful. If you heard, I love you for the first time, hopefully it was from somebody you wanted to hear it from, but you would, you would remember the meaning of that. And maybe on the other end, someone has said, I hate you. And in those moments, you can't unhear those words that were said. A brief illustration in my Monday through Friday work, I work in as an administrator in an early learning environment. There's uh, there's about 11 classrooms, 30 teachers, 150 children from six weeks to four or five years old. Um, and as an administrator, you know, towards the end of the day, 
you know, try to float through the hall and make sure things are going okay. In that setting, there's a very highly regulated staff-to-child ratio that's expected to be held legally for good reason. But our departure time isn't like a school. There's not like a bell that dismisses everyone for the day. So people are coming in when they're done with work. They're picking up their children and they're leaving. So with all this going on, it can be a little bit like organized chaos as we go from 11 classrooms to 9 classrooms to 5 classrooms. You know, as long as the parents are there by 6 o'clock, we're all happy. But, but our staff is leaving as kids are leaving. And it's just it's a little organized chaos, as I said. So I hear certain things at that time of the day. Things like this. Uh, we just lost two kids so we can combine with our neighboring classroom. To which I say, we don't lose kids. They go home. Right? Or you'll hear an expression like, I just pushed a kid over so we're good. <laughs> What they really mean is that they transferred a child to another classroom. So when I hear these things, I'm constantly letting our staff know that words matter. Let's say children go home or leave for the day. Let's say we transferred them to another classroom. Because I can imagine the day where the family picks up their child, hears these two expressions, goes home and is sitting at the dinner table and says, Today I heard they lost two kids and pushed one. I don't think we want to send our kids there anymore. So all this ingests just to kind of orient us to this fact that the words we say have meaning and they matter. So we're going to go on and actually start to look in James. And we're in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And we have to understand as we begin to look at James what he's coming out of. James is coming out of his key argument that faith without works is dead, right? We are not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. But our works are evidence or demonstrations of that very faith. So we work because we're saved already, right? But he's come out of this key argument. And the very next topic he chooses to discuss is words we speak, which tells me that it is uh, prominent as evidence for the outworking of our faith. The words we speak are prominent evidence of the outworking of our faith. It's the very next topic that he goes to. So we look at verse 1 here in chapter 3, and he starts with this caution, you know, that, hey, not many of you should rush to be teachers. He's probably thinking, hey, I just told them you got to work out your faith, and I don't want everyone running up you know, to a pulpit thinking that is, you know, that is the thing they should be doing. He understands that some are called to preach and teach, that it's a noble calling, but it's just a little word of caution to say, don't rush into that, right? It's under a different level of scrutiny. We all know this, right? Everyone has done or has gone home or knows someone that's gone home, and the teacher or preacher It's like, I don't know if I agree with what was said, or I didn't really like how that came across, right? That that happens. Um, You're all going to pretend it doesn't, but but we know that it does. And it may not be intended to be harsh, right? But there is, every word I say today is under a different microscope, right? And even the words a preacher or teacher says outside of their actual teaching ministry are evaluated 
with a different level of scrutiny. So he's just warning us, you know, don't rush to that decision. If that is your calling and giftedness, that's a noble thing. But let's be careful. And then he goes on and says, we get a little bit of a sigh of relief. He says, we all stumble in many ways. So even preachers and teachers are in that all category. You know, they, they stumble too. And that if we are able to control the words that come out of our mouth, we can control our entire body. So this is speaking to the degree of difficulty that is placed on our ability to perfectly control the words that we say. It's incredibly difficult. James then moves on to provide us with three illustrations. Um, and, and they are, uh, the first two are typically viewed as, you know, they're demonstrating small things that can operate or control larger things, right? We put a small bit in a horse's mouth and we can get it to obey us and we can turn it how we want to. There's a large ship that can move with a very small rudder, right? So these concepts of large things um, that can maneuver big things. Our tongue is compared to them in the fact that, you know, it's a small part of our physical body, but it can make great movements, right? I don't recommend you do this, but if you were to yell fire in a crowded room, something would probably happen. You would create movement with the words from a, from the small tongue. But I think something I want to unpack and point out here is that these illustrations are also directional in nature. So the words we use can chart a course and a direction. So we see movement and direction. If we know someone who is constantly constantly and chronically negative, complaining, grumbling, using foul language, we see that show up in their body language, in their posture. Uh, They would suggest even in the way they age because it takes more muscles to frown than to smile. And if we're around that person, we may find ourselves more inclined to do and say those same types of attitudes and actions. On the contrary, if we're around a positive person that speaks affirming words, encouraging words, joyful words, we find that very affectious. It's something we want to be a part of, and it hopefully rubs off on us in that way. So just demonstrating that the words we use can be used to build up or to tear down. There's a directional element in what the words we use that come out of our mouth can take us. So I'm going to share a story just to illustrate what I'm trying to suggest with this directional piece of the text. I was in the car driving my son, who was seven at the time, to his baseball game. And he was at the level right between T-ball and when the players can start pitching it to themselves. It's called, it was called coach pitch. So they go from hitting it off a tee to the coaches just kind of tossing it gently, you know, in close proximity. And for whatever reason, my son, as the season progressed, he got increasingly embarrassed or ashamed if he didn't hit a ball that was thrown and needed to use the tee. 
Now, there's good reason that after five pitches, they bring the tee out, and parents appreciated that because otherwise the game would last forever. So he realized, like, if I only get five and I don't hit one, they're going to bring the tee out, and then I'm going to feel embarrassed that I didn't hit the live pitch thrown to me. So we're on the way to his game. And just to give you some context, his favorite restaurant at the time was the Dandy Mini Mart. So if you're familiar with with those, um, that was his favorite place to go eat. And he says to me, he says, Dad, if I don't have to use the tee, right? So if I if I get a hit off of the pitches thrown and never have to use the tee in today's game, will you take me to the Dandy? You know, and I'm driving and it would be very natural in a situation where you're driving and the kids are saying something from the back seat that you just kind of like, yep, sure, you know. But for some reason in this moment in time, and I take no credit for this, the Holy Spirit slowed my thinking down and influenced my heart in a way to say, be very careful what you respond And the response given to me by the Holy Spirit was, if you do your best and have fun, we can go to the dandy. See, the message I wanted to convey in that moment to my son was not that your father only loves you and celebrates with you based on the outcome of your performance. right? Rather, your, your effort and your joy, and we'll celebrate that. That's just a glimpse of a window of time about how the words we use can directionally influence our lives and relationships with other people around us. And as I said, that's not of me. That is God intervening in my heart and my life in a moment in time to say, be careful what you say. It could change the direction of the relationship you have with your son and how he views why you love him. Right, So that's just an illustration to give you an idea of what I'm saying with directional speech. And then he moves on from this concept of direction and small things moving big things. And he talks about the fact that the tongue is incredibly powerful to be destructive. Right, That, that you know, a small spark can light a forest on fire. And in this day and age, you know, we think about this in the context of something going viral. Right. I put put a message out on social media. Uh, it may be true, maybe not true. If maybe an allegation or an accusation about somebody, and boom, my workplace, right, the hallways in your schools, everybody knows instantly, and it can do devastating destruction and damage to relationships. So, what I find is as technology has changed the way in which we communicate. My observation is we've also gotten more bold about what we say when we hide behind screens to say it. Right? It's really easy to flex my muscles (laughs) when I'm behind a screen distant from a person. And I'm always counseling people, if you wouldn't say it to their face, then it shouldn't be said any other way as a reminder. We've kind of lost touch with that reality. So I would encourage that. And then in verse 6, he's essentially saying that the tongue in its natural fallen state is under Satan's control. In a post-fall world, 
you know, Satan has control of our tongues, and he's making that point to us. And then moving on, he reaches back into Genesis, and he talks about um, our ability to kind of tame and have dominion over animals. Right? The Hitchcock family struggling to get a four-month-old Labrador retriever tame, but we're getting there. We're working on it. But but we understand that we tame we tame animals, and it says no human being can tame the tongue. So this feels like a message that's a little bit hopeless, a little bit you know feel a little bit of despair because well, geez, no no human can be can do it. So what's what's the point? And I would encourage you in that way to think about the story of the Holy Spirit intervening in my life and would do the same for you. So as you're walking in faith, the Holy Spirit will move in your heart and your mind towards more profitable speaking. Speaking that builds up. In the closing verses of the section, James makes a statement about really incompatibility. He says, if you, you know, out of this mouth you bless God and then you curse those made in his image. So he's still in Genesis, uh, chapters 1, verse 26 and 27, uh, being made in the image of God. He's saying, you can't do this. They're not compatible. Don't speak out of both sides of your mouth. Don't come to church on Sunday morning and praise God with your worship songs and praise God through your prayer and praise God in your conversations with one another and then at the same time go home and curse those that have been made in His image. So this concept of incompatibility is is quite obvious why that doesn't work. But I want us to think about something. We typically think about this passage as it relates to orienting how we talk about others. Right? Like, I'm going to think about other people being created in God's image, and that should inform how I speak to them. And that's true. But I have to ask the question, how do you speak about yourself? What is your self-talk like? Do Do you talk to yourself as though you're also created in God's image. When you failed at home, you know, with a spouse or a child, or you failed to accomplish something in the workplace, what is your what is your commentary to yourself? Because in my line of work, as I said, I being in early learning, I see a lot of mothers. And they're generally seem very busy. And, and very, you know, tired, and they're trying to keep it all together. Schedules, you know, meals, laundry. Um, and I know that, that mothers kind of get boxed into this world of comparison. They're trying to be mom of the year. And there's, there's a good reason for that, but there's also a lot of pressure. And I wonder, when I think about a passage like this, it makes me wonder... What are they speaking to themselves as they're trying to do something that's impossible? So I would encourage you moms, you know, I hope you're saying things to yourself like, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am created in God's image. I am a child of God. I am His 
masterpiece or his workmanship. I hope those are comments that are being said to yourself as you're trying to perform to be mother of the year. And if you are someone that has a mom or has a mother of your children, I would encourage you in the coming days to speak those same things into their lives. They're due that honor. So I want to kind of wrap up this idea of what we're um, talking about this morning, because I think this helps with the, the idea of incompatibility. So in Romans 5.5, 5, it said, God, God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Right? Pretty simple. God's love's poured into our hearts. In Matthew 12 and 17, Jesus says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Right? So God's love's poured in. What comes out of my mouth is what was in my heart. And then James is saying, out of the same mouth can't, can't come both praising God and cursing those made in his image. Does that help connect the dots to like the logic flow here? Like, if God's love is poured into our hearts, and the things that we speak out come from our heart, the things we speak should speak consistently in a manner that's worthy of being consistent with God's love. That is the way in which we should be speaking. So I came across a story a couple of years ago that I think is fitting for this text. There's a judge, Michael Ludig, and he was called to testify before the House Select Committee around the events of January 6th and what transpired there. And he spoke incredibly slowly in his testimony. And in doing so, he received very harsh criticism. There were folks that said, you know, he must have had a stroke. Um, He's got some sort of speech impediment. Um, And even some that went as far as to say he's not credible because of how slowly he communicated. So I'm not trying to make a point that's political about the the day of those events, his testimony, the investigation. That's not the point I'm trying to make. Um, But when we think about the response and the slowness of speaking, there's a conversation that came out that's incredibly helpful. Um, Joe Hagan, who's a writer for Vanity Fair, put this out on Twitter. I like how this guy treats every line of his testimony like he's engraving it on a national monument. And frankly, he really is engraving it for history. And he seems to know it. I also respect, despite how halting he may sound, that Ludig is not setting himself up to be a mere soundbite maker. He's speaking to history, not TV. His sobriety, his graveness, his hallowedness is so foreign to our modern sensibilities. But that's the point. That is the precise point. So that's the first volley of the conversation. And Ludig comes back and responds, You almost understood precisely what I was at least attempting to do to the best of my abilities during the hearing Thursday. What you could not know and did not know, but I will tell you now, is that I believed I had an obligation to the select committee and the country to first formulate then to measure, and then to meter out every single word that I spoke, carefully, exactingly, and deliberately, 
so that the words I spoke were pristine, clear, and would be heard and therefore understood as such. And I thought, wow, think about every word that you say being engraved on a national monument. It certainly would change the things that we said. And then I said, well, given this scripture from James, what if I treated every word that flowed from my heart to my mouth or my keyboard as if it represented the triune God? the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because that's, that's bigger than a national monument. Those will come and go. But I will stand to attest for every word that I said and did it represent Jesus Christ. Perhaps if we thought that way, we would be more careful first to formulate, then to measure, and then to meter out every single word that we spoke Carefully, exactingly, and deliberately, so that the words we spoke were evidence of our salvation in Jesus Christ. The sobering thought, but it's truth. Today we're going to close our service uh, with communion, as Josh had mentioned. So if you have the elements, you can take those out. And I am going to be uh, working through Matthew 26. Um, The the events of the Last Supper, uh, to to share this and to minister with you. And it says this in Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. So in the same way this morning, as we both remember and acknowledge his special presence, I now invite you to take and eat this bread. It says, Then Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As we take this cup this morning, let us be reminded of the forgiveness of sin and the future hope of one day drinking it with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. I now invite you to take the cup. Matthew's account continues, and he records that after they shared that together, that they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll invite you to stand in a hymn, as Jesus and his disciples did as we are dismissed from this place.
Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful for your instruction. We ask, Lord, that as we seek to to walk the walk of faith in Christ, that we'd also talk the talk. That we would honor you with the words that come out of our mouth. That we text in our messages, that we post on our social media accounts. May every word we use be thought of intentionally and deliberately so that we understand who we represent with those words. May we seek to use our words directionally to build others up, to pour out the love you've put in our hearts through our mouths and into the life-giving words that you've given us that could be shared with the world around us. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the ability to participate in the ordinances you've given us to remember you through the Lord's Supper. And we thank you that we can long for the day we get to share it anew with you in your Father's kingdom. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to just sing a verse or so of the old rugged cross. And it's just our voices, so... We have the words to put up on the screen? Okay. Are we ready? On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame And I love that old cross Where the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was slain So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a crown Go and be blessed. Thank you.